we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi everybody, I'm Sess Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. Today's guest is Richard Turner. Richard is a renowned Australian entrepreneur, innovator and business leader. He's a former Australian Entrepreneur of the Year and the founder of several billion dollar companies. When it comes to entrepreneurship, Richard is an expert. He's a specialist in reinvention and industry disruption. He is passionate about sustainability and he wants to assist businesses to achieve their purpose and potential. He's the author of The Essential Entrepreneur. And if you want advice on the fundamentals of business success, well, Richard should be your go-to. Hi, Richard. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Sis. It's great to be here with you. Awesome. Now, it's pretty safe to say that you're very passionate about reinvention because you've moved sectors a number of times during your career. Um, You're on like your third billion dollar business, which is a pretty massive achievement. So when you were a kid, were you a bit of a chameleon? Where does that ability to adapt and change and be successful come from? Look, I think growing up in a business family probably started it. My father had a a very large uh, meat processing and wholesaling business when I was young. So um, he made sure that we learnt the value of money and and we learnt the value of hard work and during school holidays put us to work in the factory, washing the walls, cleaning the drains, and I think we progressed (laughs) to packing the offal and (laughs) all the great jobs. So Very glamorous. But um, but look, it was it was a tremendous experience to grow up in that environment and learn not only not only those values, but how to talk to people and how to get on with all different cultures. And and I was the youngest of three boys, and I think um, I, I was the only one that had the opportunity to go to university. And uh, it was at a, at a time in the early '80s when computers were just evolving for businesses, and we just progressed from an old Wang computer with a five-inch floppy disk that was doing the accounts to this massive, almost mainframe Hewlett Packard um, computer. And 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 I was one of the first cohorts at university doing a bachelor of business that actually learnt computer coding, um, which I guess for the family at that time was a, a big advantage to have someone from the family coming through that could actually take over and, and run this machine. The main aim was to start automating or systemizing um, a lot of the, the processes in the organization. And, and our livestock trading was a massive thing. It was, we were buying 
tens of thousands of head of cattle all over the country. We had to track prices and the weights and the yields and everything to do with that and massive manual tasks. So my first job was to automate the whole livestock trading process. And I think from, for a young lad at that time, I was only probably 21, the realisation of the insight that gave the business and the competitive advantage that gave the business in the market and how that business developed and evolved from there. Obviously, a lot of, a lot of resistance at the time because it was new technology and, and harnessing it and using it. But it, it really, you know, I guess, gave me an insight into innovation and, and disruption in an industry. And at the time, I remember thinking, this is really cool. And um, anyway, that, that company went public. Um, it uh, continued to grow. My father retired and, and sold his share down to... Uh, one of our cattle buyers, in fact, two of our cattle buyers ran that company. It's now trading as Thomas Foods and a, and a multi-billion dollar company, but just a great company to grow up in and learn at the time, you know, how, how to disrupt and change an industry. And and, uh, and and I guess took that mindset, probably set the pathway for the rest of my life in, in changing industries. Do you think that that's how that innovation DNA kind of became embedded within you? Oh, definitely, definitely. And um, when my brothers and I set up our second company, which was um, or our family second company, which was a company called Regency Food Services, which was a uh, it, it was a large food service distribution business that started very small. There was really just the three of us when we started, and um, but we looked at what that industry was doing globally and we could see an opportunity. So if you had a restaurant or a takeaway or a catering business at the time, you were generally dealing with lots and lots of different suppliers because of the different temperature zones and the different logistics required. You had to have suppliers for frozen foods and groceries and um, fresh foods and confectionery and small goods, all different temperature zones requiring different vehicles and different manufacturers to deliver. Um, and sometimes you had 20 or 30 different suppliers, but there was an opportunity to start consolidating that and becoming the first, what we call total food service supplier, being the one-stop shop for everything and setting up the first complex multi-temperature zone warehousing system, multi-temperature zone trucks, delivery vehicles, and um, and going to market under that concept, and we really took off in that market. And I think that was that was the first of many innovations in that business. Um, probably the second major innovation we did in that business was actually one day my brother Greg and I were talking, and I said to Greg, "You know, we're we're running a warehousing operation like typical warehouse operations, running from sort of early morning till early afternoon." Yet our customers were hospitality. They were running from sort of lunchtime to late evening and almost opposite hours of the clock to what we were operating. And um, we'd get people leaving, um, you know, orders on the, on the answering machine and, and chefs are grumpy people at the best of times and they'll say, you know what I want, you know, slam the phone down and, and of course, the orders would get you know, mistaken or picked wrong or delivered wrong um, and we'd have to send out expensive couriers to fix them. So we, we went about the process of, creating the first 24-hour food distribution operation in the country, um, which was a challenge. You know, we had to do some serious enterprise bargaining to enable our staff to work 24 hours a day. We had three tele-sales shifts that went from early morning till 10 at night when the chefs finished their trade. And 
um, uh, we we picked the goods from sort of 10 p.m. when we closed the orders off till till sort of early hours of the morning. We were picking our stock and doing laps of the warehouse with a very sophisticated um, uh, picking system that we developed in those days. And uh, and so we were last to take orders. We got the orders right. We had the relationship with the customers. We were first on the road with the deliveries the next day and obviously created a very significant point of difference in the market for the business. And um, you know, we grew and grew. And, and I remember getting the phone call from Hugh Quigley, the CEO of Qantas Flight Catering, back, I think I can even remember the date, it was January 1996, to say, Richard, we're going to give you the Qantas Flight Catering business. And um, then not long after that, we got the Olympic Dam business with BHP, and um, the, the company just took off. Um, we... Yeah, there's other innovations in that company, but um, uh, you know, we, we created a, a labour hire company, which you know th- there was a shortage of of hospitality staff at the time, much like there is now, and um, uh, we we created a, a, a labour hire company for front of house food and beverage staff and chefs called Regency Staffing, and we had about 300 chefs working for us at one point, including 10 chefs at Qantas, and. Um, but we set this up primarily as a flexible workforce to, as a service to help our clientele, but realised very quickly that, of course, it's the chefs who order the food. And if you own the chefs, um, you pretty much own the circular control of the food supply. So <laughs> there's a market innovation. And, um, and then another, another thing we always have to ask ourselves when we're in business is, what business am I in? And quite often, there's two or three or more businesses actually operating within a business but often what you find it's only one of those businesses that actually makes the money or where you add the most value as the founder or the you know the management team in the business and there's other superfluous things that you're doing that just create headaches or distract you from the the core business that makes the money so you've always got to ask yourself what business am i in and for us we were very good at purchasing we ran this great complex warehouse um we were good at marketing and sales but running a fleet of very expensive trucks where drivers would be sick um uh, trucks would have to be maintained and cleaned and it was just a headache managing this fleet of trucks that seemed always out of our control and we thought what can we do about this and these trucks are all very as i said they're they're about a hundred thousand dollars a truck they're very expensive vehicles and we had about a dozen of them and uh, we thought, well, maybe we could offer that to our drivers and see if they wanted to own and operate their own trucks. And we had this conversation, and as you could imagine, a bit dubious about where we were heading with this, but you've only got to get one or two interested and, uh, and do well from the arrangement, and then suddenly, suddenly um, everyone else will follow. And uh, anyway, we, we worked out roughly what the percentage of the value of the goods the drivers were taking out. They only ever seemed to be able to do about 25 deliveries a day. You know, as I said, drivers were sick. Um, there was all sorts of different things that caused interruptions in our supply. And um, anyway, as soon as the drivers took it on, they were like supermen overnight. Suddenly they were doing double the deliveries. Their truck was always clean, <laughs> it was always maintained. You know, they were never sick or they had fill-in drivers ready to go. Um, our customers almost basically became their customers. They were rotating the stock on delivery and upselling everything and giving them the best of service. And that not only brought back probably a million dollars into the company in capital because we had all that invested in our trucks and they bought their trucks, 
um, the service side of the business went through the roof and the efficiency of deliveries went through the roof. So, you know, one of the golden rules in business is always ask, what business am I in? So, uh, <laughs> Sounds yeah. like it was a very pithy question for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was our second business. And then our third business, which was a very different journey again, was um, Zen Energy, uh, which I founded back in 2004 from basically my kid's cubby house. Um which simply came from playing late one night with them and the sun was going down and they wanted to put a little TV and a light in the cubby and um, there was no power at the back of the yard. And, and this is way before there was any solar companies or battery companies. This is back in 2004 because our company virtually pioneered the solar industry in Australia. Um, but I said, okay, well, let's, let's pull on the back of the, the, the car and we'll go down the hobby shop and see what we can find, thinking it might be some sort of battery um you know car battery type solution anyway got a little um little solar panel quite a small one at the time and um um i did i enjoyed maths and physics at school so i enjoyed sort of matching components up and the guy who was helping us wrote ohm's law on the whiteboard you know what's equals volts times amps and we had to match <laughs> a battery to the solar panel and then we had a little inverter and a, and a, and a regulator and some switch gear and cables and things and anyway got this little system working for the cubby house and kids had a wow of a time and I, I sort of stood back and thought wow you know there's no actual technical barrier to potentially running a house with this technology so as I said, this is back in the very early days. And um, uh, my father-in-law was an electrician, a, a senior electrician, and I, I sort of ran some things past him and, and started researching potential component manufacturers around the world and and um, found a, a company called SMA in Germany that had just come out of the railway sector and did big inverters for, for the railway yards and just started dabbling in small household inverters potentially for solar and found a company in China that had just set up a, um, a hand-made production line for small solar panels and, and uh, sort of brought these two companies together and got them to integrate their componentry and, and brand it, which was a really key thing for us because people didn't under, understand the technology back then, mm. really in the realms of weird science. You know, how do you I'm make... not sure they do these days still. <laughs> <laughs> They're better at it these days, yes, I can tell you. They, they do understand the components and what they do, but... Back then, it was really in the realms of weird science. No one understood how this thing operated. Um, so it was really important for us to develop a really good brand that people could relate to. And we we wanted to turn this into a system so people bought the system, not the individual components. So we did a couple of really key things that are probably good lessons for people in business is um, the brand, um, you know, you, you must create a brand that has um, solid meaning for what you do, um, probably a few dual meanings, like Zen for us was an acronym at the time for zero energy. It was about balancing generation of energy and demand. Uh, Professor Ross Garno now, who's on our board and one of the key owners of the company, calls it zero emissions now because that's the journey we're on at this time. Um, but it has those nice Eastern connotations of wisdom, enlightenment, and a new way of life, You know, all the things you want to capture in a renewable energy brand. So... So that was really important for us and um, and developing the system and the sector. So we didn't call it a solar company, as you know. Um, we called it a home energy company. We thought there'd be you know, other technologies that would emerge that we could use in the home. But the key thing we did, and a really important thing for people trying to 
separate themselves from the masses and 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 be found in the market is create if you're going to disrupt or change or create a market give it a <clears throat> give it a name so we called this market home energy we coined the term home energy and we owned it back then um and so as so when you're working with media and pr and uh, and advertising uh, or marketing, you actually position yourself as the leader of this new industry. So it really just separates you right out. So we had all the media continually coming to us, asking all these questions about home energy. Uh, so whenever anything came up about energy or home energy in particular, they came straight to us. You know, we just positioned ourselves at the the top of that market, and that business just took off. Um, you know, we, we were growing at a rate, I think, averaged over three years at over 430% you know, per year on, you know, over a period, of, a period of years. So we won the fastest growing company in South Australia, I think, two years in a row, which was supposed to be impossible to do, <laughs> to maintain <laughs> growth. And uh, we were the fourth fastest growing com- company in the country. But, um, but you know, there's a lot of things that underpin that and enable you to grow at that speed, like having proper a quality management system of some sort that you develop that can be an internal system and processes and procedures and um, you know, having a platform to enable rapid growth. So everyone in the business knows what they're doing. You know, they, um, you know, they can write their own procedures and processes, but just so everyone knows what they're doing, everything is consistent in the business. Consistency is, is really important. But um, but also planning. Yeah, plan, yeah. planning. I was going to say that um, sometimes when businesses scale so rapidly, that is when they topple over and things go haywire yeah. and what was a great business suddenly becomes less so because they've, they've scaled too fast and haven't been able to keep, um, yeah. you know, the practicalities going at the pace that they need to. So what, what would be some tips from you then for a business that might be going through those growing pains? Yeah, very important to recognise the stages in growth of a business. So that startup phase, which is what I call the ideation, the creation stage, it's a very, very different skill set to growing a business when you've got to grow rapidly. And particularly when you get to that sort of million dollar revenue mark, you get all these other complications come into your business like dealing with inventory dealing with people dealing with governance dealing with suppliers dealing with customers yes <laughs> dealing with bankers um finance and raising money it's it's all these different complications come into it it's a very different skill set in growing a business and particularly you know the regency foods business that i talked about that became bidvest in in australia um and or bid food as it is now in fact the young girl I employed as my receptionist when she was 20 is now the CEO of that multi-billion dollar business in Australia. Oh, wow. Um, That's a career path. <laughs> a remarkable story. But look, a remarkable story about employing the right people that you don't just employ someone to be the receptionist forever. Employ someone that has the potential to develop within the organisation and go on that journey. Like you should be really focused on setting and this probably comes back to the early days of setting up a business, really focused on setting the mission and vision and values of that organisation. You know, the passion that you have for that business, or you should have a passion for that business, and that passion goes into setting the right vision and mission and values for the company. So 
you attract people like bees to a honeypot. People want to work for that company. They want to go on that journey. Like with Zen Energy, we we just were like a magnet to people who wanted to be part of the transition of the energy sector and uh, on that pathway to zero emissions. And it's just a great way to retain people in doing that. Mm-hmm. So what if I'm, I'm an aspiring entrepreneur and I've got a great idea? How do I know it actually is a great idea? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, this is the, the probably the most critical point in the business. And, um, and sadly, a lot of people I see, and too many, uh, will come to me after they've spent you know, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars on a product that they thought was a great idea or a service to find there's no customer that's actually willing to pay the price for that product <laughs> or service. And, um, you know, the sad thing is it's, it's bad enough when it's your money, but if you've borrowed money or finance to do that, you, look, I want everyone to have the opportunity to start a business because I think it's the most fantastic and rewarding way to completely change your life circumstances and give you the, the financial freedom and the flexibility and all these things that we crave and we want. A business can do that to you. But if you get it wrong and you get the fundamentals wrong, it can take all that away from you as well and it can set you back a long way. So it's really, really critical you get the fundamentals of starting a business in place. And Coming back to that that last question about how how you grow a business, um, once you get past the ideation phase and the and the validating the market, which is just going out and simply you might, you might start with family and friends and and asking more questions and open ended questions about how can this product be improved and you go through the cycle of improvements until you get the right market fit, and then you go out and test it further within the actual industry you're looking at. But once you get past that stage and you know it's a an idea that's got legs and you've got some traction, then you've actually got to sit down and plan the business. And with your accountant, and I remember sitting down for hours and hours on end going over and over and over the numbers of how many of these things do I have to sell, at what margin, um, what's my cost of goods, you know, when I get this landed, what, you know, if, if I, if I, have a plan for if I overperform of what the expectations are, if I perform sort of what I plan and what I plan to make and how I'm going to use that money, if I underperform or if I have to get out of this business really quickly. You know, you have all the different scenarios all planned, but um, but to sit down with your accountant and go through all of that, like a mini profit and loss statement of, um, you know, over the next three years on what you think you can sell and make, and you've got to be able to make a return on on your business that is better than putting your money in the bank. You know, people don't realize that when you go into business, you are taking a risk and that risk should command a, a much higher return on your money than just putting it in a bank or putting it in some sort of safe haven. Yeah. So, uh, should you also be considering, um, you know, this is where I want to be in 10 years and if I want to scale to that size or be yeah. this kind of business, this is kind of at least maybe have some kind of, pathway for how you're going to get there absolutely so what i like to talk to businesses about particularly early stage businesses because people get so lost in the forest on their business and their day-to-day work they forget to actually raise their heads and think where am i going so i like to get businesses to think five or ten years into the future as to what this business is going to look like what what is the the revenue what is the profit what is the infrastructure I need? Um, you know, the technical infrastructure, the physical assets that I need, the people that I need. What's the organisation chart going to look like? 
because if you if you if you go to year ten or year five, depending on how far out you like to go, I like to go out ten years and start with that and start with a revenue at like ten times the size you are now, and then you, and people get so blown out by that they can't they can't even think or envisage them their company being that size. But that's what you should be doing from day one, thinking about that's what I want this company to be. And then year by year, if you step that back to where you are now, suddenly the pathway becomes real when you think, I can do that. And you know the most clarity you're going to have, of course, is over the next year or maybe the next two years. So you, you have your, your one-year action plan of things that must happen in the next year and you, you tick those milestones off. But you know, years two and three, you, have, you should have pretty much planned um, but all business plans are living things. You know they change. So if you if you're undershooting it or overshooting it, you can adjust accordingly. But having that pathway to get to the company you want it to be in five years or ten years, that's the way you need to plan. It's it's all about vision. And um, but you know, decisions you have to make in the early days include: is it a product or a service I'm offering? You know they're very different. A lot of people have great ideas for service companies, but don't actually think through the fact that. They only make money when they're working. You know, service companies are hard work. Um, if you have a products company, and also the value of the company at the end of the day, a service company, because you are generally the product, um, will only sell for about one times the profit. A products company will sell for five to ten times the profit, sometimes even 20 times the profit, depending on what it is. Um, but you could potentially have a, um, a service company that then you could develop a product out of, yeah? Absolutely. And there's a good example of that in my book. So I, I have a chapter in the book called A Product or Service, and it talks about how do you productize a service to, to, to create that, just that, have something that you can sell day and night and all over the world. And a great example in this book, I've interviewed a number of leading entrepreneurs to, to get their stories on how they navigated some of these chapter topics. And a brilliant one for that one is Toby Pierce's story with his partner, Kayla Itson, oh, when they sweat. developed the sweat business. Yeah. And, you know, Toby's got a remarkable story. Um, and so have the others in the book. They're, they're all remarkable and all, all sort of fit within different chapters of the book. But Toby's story, he was a personal trainer when he was young. In fact, he came from quite a poor background and was just doing odd jobs. And, but he liked working out in the gym and, and a friend he met in the gym had just got his personal training certificate and said to Toby, I reckon you could get one of these and I'm earning $90 an hour and Toby's eyes lit up and, and <laughs> wow, you know, I could be that. You know, so he went and got his certificate um, to do personal training and then he was doing one-on-one -on -one training and Toby's of the mindset, very, very smart guy, but, um, but always was asking himself the question, how can I earn more out of this? And he thought, well, if I do groups, group training of sort of 10 people indoors, I can earn, you know, much more money. Then he started doing that. Then he thought, oh, if I take them outside, I can earn so much more money. And then um, then he had some of his you know, crew that he was teaching asking, oh, I'm thinking about doing more training at home. And he thought, oh, how do I make money out of that? So he, he started <laughs> to uh, think. And, and, and timing is everything. And timing is another chapter in the book. Timing is everything. And they started that business in 2015 with, when social media was still emerging. Streaming video was very clunky and very ordinary, but they, um, and ebooks were just starting to be a thing. So he thought, I'll, I'll write a book on nutrition and training. And he didn't get the images back in time for the training bit, but he released the nutrition book. And then, you know, a couple of months later, he, re he released the training book to sell to his customers that were training at home. 
And uh, he sold about a thousand of these, you know, beyond his actual customer network, you know, friends of friends, and did quite well out of that. And then as social media was emerging, he he and Kayla thought, well, you know, let's let's can we get on social media? Can we actually do training workouts on on video? And it was as he describes it, terrible and clunky and awful. But they persisted with it. Um, but the result of that is they productized what was essentially a personal training service. And as the internet got better and their videos got better, or they got better at what they did and their branding um, evolved, like it was initially sweat with Kayla. And then as they grew the business, it was sweat with, there was four or five other trainers. And um, then eventually they dropped the with off in the, and it was um, just sweat. But long and short of that story is by, by 2021, they had a global reach of 50 million people and um, and they sold that business to iFit for $400 million. You know? So you're never going to do that with a small personal training service. And it's just an example. Right timing, timing's everything, but you know, um, productizing a service. Yeah. I think what's also interesting is... Um that reinvention piece doesn't necessarily actually mean, you know, reinventing the wheel and coming up with a brand new product. It's just kind of maybe a different way of delivering a product that can be yeah. what's innovative. Most often it is just a different way of doing the business and, and that can be through technology or physical ways or whatever. But, you know, sometimes it's no point in going into business if you're just going to compete day to day with companies that are already exist in the same way because people don't buy sameness, they buy difference. And um, um, often, you know, you might think, how can I compete against this, you know, conglomerate in the in the, in the industry that's, you know, because companies that are established have, have their customers, they have the finances behind them, they have their supply chains. It's really difficult to come in and compete with an existing business that's doing very well. And, you know, unless you're going to change the way the business operates. And quite often, competing against these big businesses that you think this is going to be too hard, you also need to realize an advantage you have is you're nimble, you're quick, you can make things change and, and do things differently that they just can't do in a big hurry. Um, there's too much behind them. There's too much investment behind them. They've got to worry about so many things to change their business model. So you can be quick and agile and get in there and completely change the way the business operates. And, um, you know, some of those ways I described with Regency Foods, the way we changed that industry and how that operated, those sorts of things can cause chaos in an industry. And suddenly you're evolving into a different model of that industry. And as I said, sometimes it's great, give that a new name and you'd be the leader of that industry. And that's the, the quickest way to get going. Now, um, speaking of which, can you tell me about uh, clean energy utility? That's your, your soon to be venture, is it not? Well, that's Zen Energy. Um, so Zen is now transitioning, which has been an interesting journey. So a different journey to the food business because that you know our family, as I mentioned, had a background in food. So going on the journey, one of the things you must ask yourself in business: Do I have all the skills to go on this journey on the on the whole journey I want to go on? So with with Regency Foods, my brothers and I did. So we were we were good with that. We saw it right through to the end. Um, when Bidvest came into the country, um, they were a South African company. They went to the UK. They rationalised the food service industry in the UK. They bought the biggest players. They came to Australia. We had just won the Australian Food Service Distributor of the Year twice in a row. They looked at our business model. They said, that's the model we want. 
Um, it was unique. Um, and they approached us five times in the year to, to buy the company. And we kept saying no. And uh, they kept upping the price. And eventually we said, okay. <laughs> so we, we, we got out. But um, uh, and then, and the then, receptionist remained. Yeah, she, yeah, she, runs, she runs their multi-billion dollar business all around the country now. So, so remarkable. Um, but Zen was a different journey. Yeah, Zen... As I said, the early days of Zen, or probably for the first 10 years, really, I was CEO, I think, for the first 10 or 12 years, um, through the the solar and the, the battery business, and I understood very clearly that business where we had to go. Lots of challenges in the market because it was all new technology and rules and regulations and the energy markets and um, utilities were trying to catch up with all that technology coming into the market. But we decided around... 20, well, 2010 was our first major investor came in, which was a, a chap called Raymond Spencer, who's um, who's well-known in South Australia, but he uh, bought into a company in the US called Greensmith Energy Management Systems, who were the pioneers of developing large-scale lithium-ion battery management systems to control lithium-ion batteries, particularly in the grid. So it was the early stages of, like you see now, the big Tesla batteries and things going into the grid. Yeah. So we, we were about five years ahead of the market in Australia because of that connection and that technology. So that was 2010. So we were building these big batteries ready to go into the grid in Australia, but you can't just plug solar farms and wind farms and big batteries into a grid that has its heavily governed by the energy market regulator and and um, um, on, on you know, how the market operates. And when you plug different technologies and it changes the way the market operates, so it was heavily governed. So we needed to have influence on rule changes and how the energy markets worked, and, and that was well beyond my personal skills. So, so Raymond brought technology into the company that, that people knew this big storage technology was going to enable the transition. But you know, we still didn't have the skills in the company to influence the changes federally or nationally that had to be made to enable this to happen. So this is when Professor Ross Garno approached us in 2015, and it was just um, um, you know, coincidence that all this was happening together. We needed to have influence on the grid to make these changes. Professor Garno, who, who initiated um, in his role in uh, advising the federal government, initiated the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the Renewable Energy Agency. He designed our first carbon pricing mechanism, a remarkable man, you know, a preeminent economics professor in Australia. Um, he did not just want to be the architect of change. He wanted to be part of the change. So he found our company um, through the work we were doing and the media we were getting. And, um, and for those companies out there and people out there looking to raise money, um, I've never had to go and pitch for money. In the, you know, this is a big lesson. These pitching things and pitching events, I, I think, are rubbish. If you do a good job of promoting your successes and getting the right media and public relations, find your home energy, winning awards, <laughs> the investors find you. And, you know, funnily <laughs> enough, the investors find you because they want to go on that journey. And um, and that's what Ross did. He found us and said, "You've got the people. You've got the technology." Um, uh, is there room for me to go on this journey with you? And we said, Ross, we need you as well, you know, <laughs> because everything was sort of happening together. And and Ross invested and joined, and we've got a remarkable board now, including Simon Holmes, of course, also on our board, and some remarkable people. And um, so that so, but Zen was a journey of I didn't have all the skills to go on the whole journey. I had to bring people in on that journey that could that could make the company and enable the vision 
to continue and to happen and transition. And, and Zen now, as I said, that started in my kid's cubby house, is now the second largest energy retailer to AGL. You know, it's a phenomenal story. Yeah, um, and I guess that for our listeners, that kind of the key thing is that you don't have to go it alone. You don't have to do it all yourself. Find yep. the expertise that you need. Absolutely. And an entrepreneur's biggest mistake often is owning a lot of nothing. Um, <laughs> and uh, rather than owning, you know, you can own a small piece of something that's very big. You know, I'd rather own a small piece of a billion-dollar business than a, a big lot of nothing. So, you know, if, you, if you've got the skills, fantastic. But if you don't have the skills to go all the way, that's not a bad thing. As long as you have the passion and the vision and you know what you need to do and you know the skills you need and you bring those people in, that might be through a board or through an advisory group. Um, you know, test those relationships first, but, but bring investment into the company that you need and, um, and the skills. Because there's two sorts of investment. There's what we call dumb money, which is just money for money's sake because you know what you're doing and the journey you're going on. Or they're smart money, people who invest, who bring with them also skills and networks and and can transform your company into where it needs to go. Mm. So did uh, mentorship play a big role in your journey as well? Yes, yes. So one of the groups uh, sort of was lucky, I think, I found mentorship at a fairly young age because when with the Regency Foods, when we won that South Australian Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 1996, I had what was then known globally as the Young Entrepreneurs Organization, which was originated out of North America. We're just starting to reach out to other countries, including Australia, and wanted to get a chapter set up in each state. But you had to be under 40, be a, um, uh, was a founder or controlling shareholder of a business that had to have over a million dollars revenue. So, you know, they were, they were looking for a person who fitted that category to found the South Australian chapter. And of course, my name was in the papers because of the, the, the win with the Entrepreneur of the Year competition. So they approached me a number of times to get this going. And like all things, when you're busy, it sort of passes across your desk. And anyway, they nailed me down and got me to a meeting um, and, uh, and I agreed to do it. And it was, just the best thing I ever did because when you run a company, as a lot of your listeners will, I'm sure, attest to, it can be a very lonely place. You, you've got all these stresses that are not just business stresses, but personal stresses in the family, financial stresses. You know, everything's happening at once. Um, you know, quite often, you're at an age where you, you you're having young children as well, and it's just all the, the pressures of life and trying to do what seems impossible at the same time. Um, gets on top of a lot of people, which is why, you know, sadly, the divorce rate with entrepreneurs is almost double the the general community. Um, really? I didn't know yeah. that. I'll, look with, I'll continue with the story with, with the Young Entrepreneurs Organisation because I founded this, got the first five members together. It's now the biggest network of commercial entrepreneurs around. It's a fantastic group. But the premise of, and it's now called the Entrepreneurs Organisation because all the founding group when they were under 40 all started turning 40 and around the world they all decided they were having too good a time so they changed <laughs> changed the name <laughs> to the entrepreneurs organization so it's now called eo um but a magnificent group where we and there's a number of different elements to the organization but one is called forum which is like your unofficial board of directors so there's sort of eight or ten of you in a forum that stays together for the length of your membership and um you basically choose a topic for the evening, but it can either be personal, 
like how are you how are you and your family coping or there might be might be divorce or it might be some other topic in the in that gets put on the table or a, or a business topic and you go around the table and you basically just share your experience on how you've navigated that particular topic um, and it is the most rewarding eye-opening thing um, that I ever did. Suddenly I found my people, you know, that when you, as I say, you, you live this lonely life running, you know, none of my friends even owned a business, let alone a large business when I was young. And suddenly you find a bunch of other people going through exactly the same challenges personally and in business you're going through when you get to share how you're coping and learn from others. And it's, you can't sell to anyone an EO. It's like you're selling to each other's band. It's purely to learn and share experiences. Um, and that was one of the, the big things I found when I was young. So I would deeply encourage anyone to join a network, whether it's an uh, EO in your state or whether it's another business network, but but definitely join one that's not just a sales network. Join one where you can actually learn and share experiences because that's that's critical when you're in business. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Really I, I, I say you're completely right about that because um, for so many business owners it is as though they're operating in isolation and even yeah. if it's a family business, there's sometimes not the sounding board that they need within a family business even to yeah. get the, that support. Yeah, it's difficult to find that support commercially. You know, you've got to, you, you have to get it from other people that are going through those same issues. Mm. Mm. Well, Richard, you have been an absolutely fascinating chat. Is there any last advice that you'd like to give to our listeners who are perhaps thinking of starting a business? Oh, the, the critical ones are you know, really validating the idea developing the startup business plan, spending the time that you have to spend to be confident in the plan, testing it out, piloting it, talking to industry people, um, understanding how to finance your business. I think another key thing we haven't talked about is finance and cash flow because you do need to understand when you're starting a business that if you're collecting the money after you've bought the product or spent the money to produce the product or service, um, you're actually, uh, you've got what's called a negative cash flow. You know, you're, yeah. you're spending the money before you collect it. And the bigger the gap between when you spend the money and when you collect it is, you know, you're more negative in your cash flow, which is okay if you're selling a few bits and pieces and you're collecting the money sort of re reasonably quickly. But if you suddenly get into a rapidly growing business, which people want to aspire to, you know, because that's at the end of the day where you create real value in your business, um, uh, the the faster you grow, the more money you need to fund the business. So I, you know, with Zen Energy, because it was a highly attractive product, I was able to collect deposits or even full payment upfront in the early days from for these Zen Home Energy systems. So we were cash positive, which was remarkable. It's not many businesses you get the chance to be cash positive. If you can be, that's brilliant because the faster you grow you're actually making money uh, and, and you know, you've got a positive cash flow. But if you're growing at a rapid rate and you've got a negative cash flow, it's much, much harder to finance the business. So you, know, you need to negotiate with suppliers. If it's overseas suppliers, um, you know, they will make you pay when the product gets put on the boat normally or the bill of lading as they call it. Mm. Um, you can, you know, it's a matter of, building trust and and they can get credit insurance on their end. There's ways and means that I cover in the book of 
being able to get a, get account terms in place with these suppliers and you don't just accept the minimum order quantities they put on you. You know, they'll try and sell you containers when you can you can push back and use certain techniques to push back and get smaller smaller quantities that you can manage better and sell faster. And so there's lots and lots of tricks. But um, you know, branding is critical. The passion culture and values is critical. Um, yeah, marketing and sales, we haven't even talked about that. Marketing is very different to sales. Yeah, so marketing is about <laughs> how to reach them and and then how to pull the emotional trigger with your with your marketing imagery and, and get them to inquire. And sales is basically when they engage with your sales channels, which could be the store or the website or whatever, that's when the sales process starts and when you have to be able to convert and manage that sales, whole sales experience right through to delivery, but very different things. Yeah, and keeping that that customer satisfied the whole way through that journey is so important as well. Yeah, and then raising money. But look, all these things are, are covered in the book. The book is basically set out as you know, 18 chapters of all these different stages of starting and scaling a business and, and the tips I've learned from mentoring hundreds of companies and, and obviously creating and running my own companies. Uh, that 40 years of, I guess, life experience has gone into this. And, and um, there's not a lot out there that, are, that is like this book. There's a lot of leadership books. There's a lot of um, you know, individual stories, but there's not a lot that actually gives you this playbook on how to start and build and make sure all the fundamentals are in place to give you the best chance of success because that's fundamentally what we need. Australia has too many... Um, well, the failed um, startup rate is pretty high, isn't it? Yeah, well, startup failure rate is high because people don't have the right fundamentals in place. We have an enormous amount of companies registered that don't employ anyone, so that doesn't do anything for our employment. And we have a lot of companies that are sort of between one to four people. It's the majority of our companies in Australia. So if we could grow those companies, um, you know, the, the impact on our economy would be a very different country. Goodbye recession. Goodbye <laughs> recession. And, uh, but it also has, as I said, you know, I want everyone should have the opportunity to, to start a business and, and give themselves the best chance of doing it because it can really change their life circumstances. And mm. where can we get the book, Richard? Well, it's in all good bookstores now, so it should be in your local bookstore. If if not, it's published through Wiley's, which are the biggest book, business book publishers in the world. It's being globally released, which is fantastic. It's actually a funny story about <laughs> about the book. Um, I don't know whether we have time now, but uh, go on, hit me with the funny story. <laughs> <laughs> I um, better be funny after this. Well, I, uh, well it depends on the interpretation. Funny, but um, uh, I actually. All the things that I talk about in the book in testing a market and testing a product, I thought, well, I need to make sure there's a customer for this book and they're willing to pay the price. So I actually put it through four independent bookstores last year. I just self-published it and um, uh, about oh, a year wow. ago and uh, through just four independent stores in Adelaide. I thought before I go to the chains and the airports and all the places I wanted to get it into, I needed to make sure this, this book had a market. So I self-published it, put it into these four stores, and lo and behold, it hit the top 10 bestsellers list. And these stores like Harry Hartog's in Adelaide um, said, my God, we've never seen this in a business book before. You know, I thought, oh, right, okay, there's a market for it. So uh, so off I trot to talk to some of the big chains like QBD and the airports. And, and then they said, oh, but we can't buy from individual authors. We only buy from publishers or distributors of publishers. And I thought, oh, 
I I've done this the wrong way around. So I um, went to, so I got recommended to go to, go to Wiley's because they are the biggest business book publishers in the world. And, and it's, I rang up and had a conversation with their head publisher here in Australia. And, and she said, but you've already published this book. It's your book. It's not our book. <laughs> and, and I said, what, what do you mean? What, <laughs> what should I have done? And they said, well, normally you would come to us with a manuscript and we would decide whether we'd publish it or not. And then we would edit it and we would design it and we would market it and, and distribute it. And I thought, oh, so that's a no then? <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, as all good entrepreneurs do, you try and work your way around it. And I said, well, would you, would you mind having a look at it and just tell me what you think? I'd, I'd be really interested in your feedback thinking to myself, I'm not going to hear back from this lady. <laughs> anyway, two weeks later, she rings me back and said, look, Richard, we've had actually had a look at the book. It is actually the book we've been looking for for a long time, and we're going to make an exception. We want to publish it, and we want to publish it globally. And I thought, oh, wow, okay. Give me 24 hours to think about that. <laughs> you know, so, um, and, uh, but they, it was interesting because it took me two years to write the initial book, and then they said to me, we want you to write 50% more content. And... Um, and we'll give you six weeks to do that. I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a deadline to make you uh, get things done. And um, so I thought, okay, well, the best way to do that would be grab who I think are the, the leading entrepreneurs in the country, which I did. And uh, so I did sort of four fantastic interviews on how they negotiated these chapter topics. And it just added so much more depth and richness to the content. And it's turned out to be a really good book. And having the professional editors, it's, you know, I've been working with a team of about 10 people at Wiley's. It's been an incredible experience. It is a different book, much richer, much fuller. And um, and the feedback I'm getting is just just tremendous. I've got people saying they're getting more out of this book than their $60,000 MBA. So, oh, wow, that's yeah. excellent feedback. Yeah, you don't get much better feedback than that. So, um, so I'm very proud of the book. I think people will get a lot out of it. Um, it also goes into ownership and equity and getting investment ready, trademarks and patents and you know, tuning, restructuring, managing growth and consistency and, and getting out of business. So, um, Yeah, because that also is a, a forgotten kind of chapter, isn't it? That, that exit strategy, you should also have an exit strategy in mind. Absolutely. And that should be early on in the business, you decide what that's going to be. And that's part of giving your business, as you said earlier, you know, the vision of where you want to go. You know, how much of a pest do you want to be in the market and who, who are you targeting to, to take you out at the end of the day? Because um, that's, you know, that's really where the money's made is in positioning the business. Thank you so much, Richard. I'm afraid I'm, I'm run out of time, but it's just been great chatting with you today. Yeah, thanks, Sess. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you.